Well, we're in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2 today. We've got, um, if you like, two miracles or two instances that we're going to refer to here. We're taking the whole of the chapter, but I'll take them one at a time. The first one is uh, when the Lord changes water into wine. And then second part of the chapter from verse 12 onwards is the title of Jesus clearing the temple. I think both of these are connected. They are two instances in the beginning of the Lord's ministry, which I think we should look at together um, because one of them is directed at Christians and the body of Christ, which is the changing of the water into wine. And the second one, which concerns the temple, concerns the people of God and how they should conduct themselves in worship before God in their Christian lives. So we'll look at the two separately. So let's just read, first of all, the story of the changing of the water into wine, which is the first 11 verses of John chapter, chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The first thing about this story is to probably try and get the setting. If we read in chapter 1, you get the constant reference to the next day. 
um, in verses uh, 29 and verse um, 35 and then verse 43 you get the reference the next day and it seems as if this is important that's been brought to our attention that this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry this is him going out uh, into the, the country this is him preaching he's ministering he's revealing himself and he's now starting and so it goes to the this day and then the next day and then the next day this happened and in chapter one as we've already heard was uh, leading up to uh, his baptism and his gathering of his disciples until you come to chapter two and it starts off by on the third day now this is the third day of his time in Galilee so this is actually a week if you take it together uh, the time that he'd been there this is the third day of his time in Galilee um, he'd been to the River Jordan before he'd been around uh, in other places and now in the third day now what is the reference to the third day I think it's very easy for us of course to to take this story purely at face value and it has got value all even just taking it as a Sunday school story. <laughs> it's always one of these ones, this is the first miracle. This is the time when Jesus did something absolutely miraculous. He changed water into wine. And of course, we learn that purely as a story about the power and the glory of Christ. And that on itself can satisfy the young Christian and the, the child to accept that this is pointing us to his glory, pointing us to his uh, majestic uh, being that he was and his power and might. But when it says on the third day, immediately as those of us who study the word of God, it clicks you into resurrection, doesn't it? Because the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, of course, that happened after this. But when John was writing this story, of course, the third day had a level of importance on its own. Because it was three days and three nights that the Son of Man was in the, the heart of the earth. He was in death until God the Father raised him out of death. On the third day he rose again. So when it starts off this chapter, on the third day a wedding took place, I think it's important that we fix our attention on resurrection. The third day. Just so just to click into that, think about that. Uh, although it's in this setting, it's before the death and resurrection of Christ. It was written afterwards. So on the third day, it says a wedding took place. So we look beyond this event and be able to think about to another marriage. Marriage is important because it speaks of a future marriage. 
uh, a marriage that you can read about in Revelation 19. It's a marriage that we are looking forward to, that we who are Christians are being gathered together. We are being made ready, to use a Bible description, because we are going to be united with the bridegroom, who is Jesus Christ. He died for us. And we who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our saviour become part of body of Christ or bride of Christ. And we are making ourselves or we are being made ready for the future marriage in heaven. So when we think about marriage, it was instituted by God. It was something that he gave us as a gift, uh, a gift of union, a gift that spoke of a man and a woman coming together to be one. A man and a woman showing their love for one another, expressing their love for one another. And the ceremony was important because it was a witness to people. The marriage in heaven will be witnessed also. The marriage in heaven will be witnessed by hordes of people who are neither not in the bride, but there in heaven. So that could be the saints, Old Testament saints, those who come through the tribulation, uh, anyway, and loads of angels. And it will all be witnessed by these hordes. And it's an event, it's something that we should look forward to. And any marriage that we go to, any marriage that we are associated with, either as guests or as people who take it or witness it or involved at all, then that is something that is precious to God. It's precious to Christ because it speaks of something in the future. And the way mankind today, and I don't need to go into this in any detail, is demeaning marriage. It's an insult to God. The way people dismiss it, the way people don't use it just as an excuse for having a party, getting drunk, or deciding when to get married after they've come together, or not deciding at all, or same-sex marriages and all this sort of rubbish that we are reading and seeing around us. It must be such an insult to God. The fact that it's honoured by Christ, by his presence. Interesting that he'd only just got gathered some of his disciples together and they were invited to the wedding. And it says his mother was there and I imagine his family would have been there, the rest of his family being his brothers. And uh, although they are not mentioned, um, I kind of think it's likely that they would have been there too. The next thing that we really need to focus on was Mary coming to the Lord and saying to him, they have no more wine. The wine has run out. I just think to, I love to think about this, and I'm sure you've done it as well, is to think about the relationship between Mary and the Lord. She was a unique woman, of course. We often think about that as 
uh, at Christmas time, uh, you know, that she was um, uh, chosen by God. She was covered by the Holy Spirit. The body of Christ was implanted in her and Christ indwelt that body. She was given the tremendous privilege of bearing the Son of God, the Son of Man. And she had the privilege of bringing him up. She had the privilege initially of seeing the God of heaven needing her help, needing her for food, for clothing, for care, for warmth, and, and watched him and taught him along with Joseph for at least some of the time and watching him grow. I cannot believe that she was not greatly rewarded by the Lord Jesus teaching her when he got older. When he was 12 years old, he was able to teach the priests in the temple. So why would he not be talking with his mum and his dad and talking to them about the things that he knew? The perfect son of God, the sinless son of God, the one who had the perfect mind and able to talk to her about his purposes of being here, the future purposes. Would he not have discussed it with her? Would he not have explained to her that this is something that was in his plan, in the plan of the Godhead, and that it was being executed in this body that Mary had the privilege of bringing forth into this world. When she comes up to him, and the way she says it, they have no wine, it's almost, his reply seems to speak volumes, like, woman, what have I got to do with you? Or, I think as I read it, uh, dear woman, why do you involve me? I think this is a lovely picture of him and her knowing that this is the beginning of him going to reveal himself. This is something that's precious and she knew and that's why she went to him and that's why he replied to her almost with a sly grin, yes, this is the time. This is when it's going to happen. And you know, don't you? Because of what he had taught her or what had been revealed to her, she knew. And that reply causes her to go to the servants and say, whatever he says to you, do it. Because he's going to do something. <laughs> she knew. She knew he was going to do something. And he, she was preparing the way. She was, because of her understanding, she was, must have been watching with bated breath, what's he going to do? She didn't know what he was going to do, but she knew he was going to do something. And this was the setting. He said to her, my time has not yet come. I think, you know, this... This was more than a miracle that was going to take place here. We read at the end of this session that it was a sign. And a sign was uh, more than just a miracle. It was something that had a meaning. 
it was something that was going to um, be spiritual, something that was heavenly, something that was um, suggestive of something else. This was not just a like a, a trick. <laughs> I, you can never demean the Lord's miracles, but there were some miracles where he just healed somebody. I say just. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. But there were other miracles that were called signs because they were pointing to something else. And this was one of them, the first one. When he said, my time has not yet come, he was about to do something. He was about to say to take water. And the water was for some ceremonial cleansing. This was a, a Jewish tradition, a Jewish ritual, that before they ate, they had to go through this washing. It was something that had been um, initially instituted by God, but it was something that the Jews, and as they did with a lot of things, they blew it out of proportion. They did it for show, because if you, there was a time later on when the Pharisees criticised the Jew, the the disciples of the Lord Jesus for eating with their hand, breaking off and eating food without cle their, the cleansing, the ceremonial cleansing. And the Lord recognised it, that he knew the heart and that they weren't um, criticising because they were going against the things of God. He was, they were criticising them because they wanted to find fault. And, but the Lord knew the heart. And in their hearts, they were just hypocrites. This water was there. All these um, water pots that were six of them standing by with up to 30 gallons in each of them. Plenty of water where they could all go and be a great show about cleansing. He took that water, the hypocrisy of it all, taken and he converted it into something which was joyful. Wine is the picture of uh, celebration and joy. And it was something that was associated with the marriage. It would have killed the celebration if there had been no more wine, because that would have been the end of the celebration. I guess everybody would have had to go home because there was nothing left to drink. And uh, that would have cut short the period of time, however long it was meant to be. Uh, but the Lord did this in front of them. And he's pointing ahead to the great joy of when the time will come, when the bridegroom will come for his bride and then there will be the flowing of wine <laughs> symbolically speaking of the great joy and rejoicing in heaven when the bride and the bridegroom come together as one the union with Christ my time has not yet come but and I think I'm putting the but in here it's as if the Lord's saying that's in the future but I'm going to give you a sign and that's the sign 
The rituals have passed. The rituals were to do with the people of Israel and the Moses law. The Lord Jesus come, had come to complete the law, fulfill the law. And we're going on to a day of grace, which is in preparation for the marriage. And that's what you see in this, this miracle. The changing of the ritual washing of water into the joyful drinking of wine, which speaks of joy. Also speaks of the blood of Christ that we've been remembering this morning. And so there's the other side of that, that in order to get to the joy of drinking wine, you have to go through the shedding of the blood which is, of course, the picture of the making of wine, the crushing, the crushing of the grape. Uh, is like the crushing of Christ on the cross. It uh, produces the joy of the wine drinking. So it, it's all pointing forward to the great day that's coming in the future. These were signs, and it says at the end of this section that... It was symbolic of his glory. He showed his glory because at verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. That miracle also showed the God, the, the fact that he was God, that he was somebody who had come from God and he had the power to show his miraculous gift, his, his miracles. It was the purpose of his mission that he was pointing them towards the marriage in heaven so this was him starting the process and it was also symbolic of the spiritual truths that were going to take place ahead. So when you look at it in that setting, there's much deeper things in it. That whilst the bride and the groom would have been absolutely thrilled that uh, they now had all this wine the fact that the, the manager of the proceedings tasted it and said, you've kept the best until now, again points to if it's of Christ, it's only the best. But we're talking about wine. That wine, would never, nobody will have ever tasted wine as good as that because it's pointing to the marriage in heaven. It's pointing to a future eternity. It's pointing to the perfection of Christ. It's pointing to us becoming one in him, the body of Christ becoming one. That makes it the best wine ever. And that makes this miracle, although it's the first one, symbolic of the future. And it's a picture of the body of Christ, those who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as a saviour, those who see him dying on the cross for them, bearing their sins, going in to the eternal glory, 
or being the bride of Christ and coming together. That is what that miracle was all about. Let's go on to the second part of this chapter, which is the cleansing of the temple. So from verse 12, <clears throat> after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. This also displays the power and the authority of Christ. Again, trying to think of the, the setting that, the, that he had come in, up to Jerusalem because it was the Jewish Passover. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, that when you read about the Passover in Exodus, it was called the Lord's Passover. Now it's called the Jewish Passover. And I think it's a picture of the Jewish people having sunk from the level of remembrance and understanding of what the Passover stood for to the ritual it became under man's guidance over many years that it was now just a Jewish ritual. When it was instituted, it was for the Lord, and it was the Lord's Passover. I think we can learn from that, and if you like, we sometimes link uh, our remembrance as something that we do on a regular basis. We have to be so careful that it never becomes a ritual. That what we do is from the heart. That's what the Lord wanted with the Passover. He wanted them to understand why these things had been done and why the Passover had been 
implemented and why once a year they should get together to do and remember it. It was something he wanted from the heart, not something that was of great show uh, to show how uh, morally upright you are, how holy you are, how righteous you are. He wanted it for him, him as I say, as something to be given to him. The same as our remembrance. You know, just being here, coming in your best clothes and sitting here and, uh, and not entering into it and understanding what it's about fails mis miserably as to what God wants. He wants us to give to him from our heart, understanding what the bread and the wine mean and why it's important to be here and take it and why it's important to sit sometimes in silence and to give to him and why it's important for men to be able to take a lead in giving out a hymn or speaking to God on behalf of those present because it's a sign that we understand and appreciate and are giving to God back at that understanding, that appreciation because of what he's given us in Christ Jesus. The Passover was a shadow of that. We've elevated it now to a spiritual thing. So the physical Passover still had to be something that was done from the heart and today in the spiritual giving that we do, in ascending in spirit on a Lord's Day morning as a holy priesthood, is something that's important to God. And it's something that is expressing what's in our heart. That's why when we come to the Lord Jesus walking into the temple, in the temple his father dwelt. Not just his father, he, he dwelt. And the Holy Spirit dwelt. The Godhead dwelt. It dwelt in the most holy place. He had come down and his glory filled the temple. And that glory is connected to Christ. And here he is, standing as a man, walking into this temple. And what does he see? He sees what mankind had made, the, present, the dwelling place of God into a place of making money. The place stank. It was full of animals. Can you imagine animals and their excrement and their smell and the, the noise of them bleating and baying and whatever else was going on. The doves flapping around, feathers everywhere. He walked in and there he sees man exchanging money. They're making money out of it. Because the law of Moses said they should sacrifice animals. So they were making money out of it. They were coming, people coming in and buying these. And negotiating and haggling. You see the righteous indignation of the Son of God coming into the place that his father had deigned to come down and dwell in. He had deigned to come down and dwell amongst the people and be there for them, to be their God and they would be his people. And this was how they treated it.
You don't often read about the Lord, the Lord getting angry. But when you look at the setting here and you see the anger and you understand as the disciples did when they recalled the Psalm, Psalm 69, that the zeal for his house consumed him. That, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, is how we should feel about the house of God today. That it's something that's, it's a zeal. It consumes us. There is nothing more important than what we do for God. We have lots of other things in our life, of course. But the priority ought to be giving to God. Or following the Lord Jesus Christ. And giving honour to him. As he's asked us to do. The stench and the condition of it all meant that it needed re-consecration. Because how could you possibly worship in a place where all that wrong was going on? It points, you know, to the Lord's dealing with it and the way he acted towards it as Maybe an understanding as to why within the house of God today, in the kingdom of God today, the importance of ensuring that we are consecrated to God. As the priests of old had to be, that there was a daily washing, as well as the initial washing of our salvation, and as well as the initial acceptance and desire to fulfil our role as a priesthood. There comes the daily ritual, if you like, the daily washing, the need for our feet and our hands to be washed. When the, when, do you remember when the Lord was washing the disciples' feet and Peter jumped up and said, well, you know, uh, wash me all over if this is necessary. And the Lord's response to that was, no, you're already been washed. You already have the Holy Spirit. You already have eternal life. Well, I'm washing the feet because that's a daily thing. And we should wash each other's feet. And symbolically speaking, we need to be making sure we are consecrated for our work. In other words, it means if you look at this story, we're not geared to just making money. We're not geared to just selling buying and selling. We're not geared to making um, personal benefit out of being religious. We're not making personal benefit out of an appearance of godliness. We, the Lord Jesus cleansed the place. He made a whip, turned over tables, cleared the place, get rid of the filth Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the contamination that was in the house of God so that it could attempt to get back to how it should be when they were coming and worshipping God. That's how we should be. Making sure our feet are washed. Making sure 
that the house of God is not contaminated. And if it is, and it's not just the responsibility of overseers purely, it's all of us to ensure that we don't bring sin and filth and smell into his house. You know what I mean? We're talking spiritually here. What the Lord Jesus Christ did, of course, was in the courtyard, was in a place where the people were. There was no need for there to be any re-consecration of the most holy place because that was holy and God was there at that time. And so that was perfect and the veil prevented access in there except for the high priest once a year. So there was no need for that. And that is where the holiness of God cannot be contaminated. But our service in life can be. And if we dedicate ourselves to him, then we, sh we have the physical problem or the physical responsibility of ensuring that our lives are kept clean. Otherwise, as we read in Revelation, the lampstand will be removed. And of course, what happened in the temple, if you remember the weeping of Christ, when he said, your house, I leave unto you desolate. And at that point, I believe at that point, the glory of God had gone back to heaven. And when the temple, or when the veil of the temple was torn in two, at the death of Christ, God wasn't there. He left. And the temple was just a big pile of bricks. Because it had no importance, it had no value, if God's not there. When the Lord... When they asked the Lord for a sign, and this is going back to what I was saying about the sign that uh, on the changing of the water into wine had a deeper meaning. The Lord gave them a sign that they asked for, but it had a deeper meaning. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it. And he was referring of course, to his death and his resurrection. That the destruction, we can look at it as being a physical destruction of the building. I think it was a lot more than that. The destruction of the temple was when the Lord left. It was the people that destroyed the temple because they rejected God. They caused him to leave because he could no longer remain amongst the people that were as sinful as the Israelite, the Jews were. And he left them. And he has not returned to that physical building. He now has a spiritual house where we, as people, gather together who have a desire to know, to worship the God in spirit and in truth, coming together as a priesthood, desirous of ensuring 
that we are consecrated unto God, separated unto God, and worshipping him in the way that he's asked. There will come a time after we've gone when the temple will be rebuilt and the Lord will come back and go into that temple. That's a coming day. But he was talking here about his body. <coughs> he was raised up after three days. The temple which is his body, he's talking about the body of Christ here. And that is, of course, the perfect body. That what was raised, what we are part of in the body of Christ, which includes the dead people, the people who are dead. It includes people who have accepted Christ as a saviour but no longer follow him. These are all the people who have been saved by the blood of Christ, who are in the body of Christ, who will be the bride of Christ. But the indignation of God and the zeal for the house is a thing on earth. It's physical and it's our responsibility as to how we live our lives before God. And therefore, let us make sure that we don't fall into the trap that the Jews did by just making it ritual, making it something that's of lesser importance than other things in our lives where we don't go give God his place. That zeal, you read about it in Psalm 69, verse 9, the zeal for his house consumed Christ. May that be the same with us, that it consumes us to the point where it's nothing else is as important as service for the Lord. Shall we pray?